In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and men, that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given to me at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then it goes on to say, therefore... Then I desire that in every place the men should pray, the women should pray, this should happen, that should happen. And he goes on to talk about the order of the assembly. When we gather together what must take place and how it must be understood. But I told you several weeks ago, this is Sermon 25 out of 1 Timothy. And as we see, we've not gotten very far, and it's not on purpose. I thought I'd breeze right through these letters, but there's some things that we need to pause and really reflect upon, and this is one of those things. We need to pause and reflect upon the reality of what we consider God to be like versus what he is actually like in what areas, in all areas. But as the text gives us this opportunity, we can say, oh, wow, there's something here that people get wrong about God. So there's two ways of bringing out words into our mind. We can bring them into our mind within the context. That means within the full structure of everything that they're written in and around. Or we can bring them into our minds in what's called a pretext. We can just take what we see and we can assume what it means based on our definition of what we read in this small little myopic blinder driven cognition. Know what I mean by that? We can read the Bible and take words how we want them to be taken, or we can read the Bible and take the words as they're actually printed in the Bible in its context. Seems simple enough, right? But it's not as simple as we think it is. If it were so simple, we would not be fighting for 500 years, for 2,000 years. We would not have uh, all the different commentaries and the different thoughts and the different denominations and the different sects and the different types of, uh, you know, faith systems and the cults and the other world religion. We wouldn't have all this stuff because there's always somebody looking at even the Bible and beginning to say, well, this is what I think it means. This is what it means to me or this is what it's saying in my opinion of which none of those things are relevant. My opinion to me, this is the way I see it. These things are not, nowhere in the Old Testament do we see God saying, I see the way, I see things the way you see it. Nowhere does it ever say in the Psalms, David never worshipped, oh God, thank you that you, uh, that, you, that you trust my thoughts. You're such a kind father to just ignore everything that's right and just listen to me. I mean, we don't see that. How horrible of a worship song with that. The ancient of days, old man, sit in your chair and leave us be, we know what's happening. I mean, that would be, that would be the worship, wouldn't it? Yet we are quick to say that's not the truth. That's just not the God of the Bible. But in a subtle way, sometimes we think, well, 
These things are the God of the Bible, but they contradict what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. What does that mean? That means He is God. The word God is a word. It's not His name. We don't know God's name, except that God has revealed His name to be Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, whichever language you want to put it in. The Christ. The anointed one of God, set apart, the Holy One. Jesus Christ, the God-man. That is the only name of God that we know. He has a lot of adjectives. He has a lot of theological terms and names. But God is not His name. That's what He is. That's who He is. It means the highest of all things in a real simple way of explaining it. So how many gods can you have? How many highest of alls can there be? No, only one. Only one. So God is sovereign because he is God, the highest of all things. He rules over all things. The scripture would show us, and you know, we've, we've gone through uh, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We, we've, we've been there. We're going to go some more into Genesis toward the end of the year and, and, and look at the gospel through the lens of the narrative, the historical record of God's people, Israel, and see the Christological reality of what all of that means. Just like today, if we were able to, you know, for some way to, to, to just hone in the lives of certain individuals, significant or insignificant, and start to see how God works in there, we can see God is sovereign over the lives of everything, everyone. The Bible says that He causes a bird, He causes a bird to fly from one place to another. Paul tells the church of Colossae that what? Jesus Christ, the creator God of the cosmos, holds it up by the word of his power. That means he declares it to continue. He says that it shall, and it does. But yet, what do we do as a culture? We're fretting about the last day. We're fretting about the war. We're fretting about the end of the world. We're fretting about the sun burning out. And I'm not, there's no politics in that statement. I'm just saying that's what we do. We're fretting about gas prices. We're fretting about wars. We're fretting about everything. When the Bible commands us, do not fret. Do not be anxious about anything. If anybody's got that down, I want to talk to you after service because I need help. Anxiety is the number one killer of pastors and then deacons. God is sovereign. That means everything is under his control. And we see that. Because we have this mentality sometimes in our culture. We hear it from fledgling Christians. We hear it from young, excitable people who have just now gotten to the reality that the Bible exists and we're going to read it. And then we hear it in the preschools and we hear it in the high schools and we hear it in the academy and we hear it in the nursing homes and everywhere in between. You know, what God is trying his best and the devil's working hard. You know what the devil does? Exactly what God has ordained him to do. You know where the devil goes? Only where God sends him. Now see, for some of us, that's like, what? Yes. Greek mythology comes from the philosophy of man trying to make gods like them. But the God of the universe, the God of the Bible is not like us, okay? And how do we know? Because God speaks to us. Here it comes. And Brother Trey did a fantastic job last week opening up the letter to the Ephesians. 
and really expounding on that transmission of God's divine revelation through the prophets and the apostles. But what is Hebrews 1? He made it very clear. God has made it very clear. He reveals himself through the prophets, through the pages of the word of God. But in these last days, he speaks only and always, forevermore, only through Jesus Christ, his son. No one else. Not through James Tippins, not through uh, any other historical record, not through a commentary, not through anybody but his son. So if what I say is not from the record of the scripture, then I am not speaking for the Lord. And if my own interpretation is tangled up in there, if my own cultural insistence is tangled up in there, if my pretext, if my theological babies are all given birth in there, then I am not preaching the truth. I'm not preaching the truth. And we are inundated with this kind of stuff. And it's the very same thing that Paul was talking to Timothy about because in Ephesus they were inundated with this very cultural ideology, this humanism, this, 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 this superiority, this knowledge, this puffed up theological things and, and everywhere in between. And Paul's instruction to Timothy is to pray. Charge them, command them now to stop talking this nonsense and for everybody to settle down and be unified under the authority of Christ, an apostle of Christ by the command of God our Savior. See, don't ever forget that. And of Christ Jesus our hope. So when Paul writes a letter, it's as if Jesus stood up before the churches and says, I command this of you. We don't get to say, well, I'm not going to listen to Paul because he ain't, you ain't God. I mean, you know. We, we, we have that attitude sometimes. But God speaks. We know that God is sovereign because his word speaks to us that he is. And we see even in the book of Job where the devil himself is in the abode of God, in the presence of God Almighty, and God sends him to Job. God gives him the authority to touch Job's life and to take everything away from Job, even his health, but he cannot take Job's life from him. He cannot kill him. See, is this the God that you know? I would encourage you to read the scripture, to read the scripture. To realize that, you know, the gospel is not God's punt. He's not punting. So, well, Adam and Eve messed it up. I guess I'll have to do plan B. There's no plan B. The fall was plan A. The reason God said, let there be light, is that Adam and Eve would fall because they are not him. And so only God can maintain righteousness because only he is righteous. <clears throat> Anything else left to itself in its own volition will fail and die. An infant that is born cannot be left in a bag for a day, much less a month. It will die. And beloved humanity, we're all babies. And we all start out there. And in a spiritual sense, we're dead already when we're born. And so only God in his sovereignty can speak to us and teach us who he is. And God has revealed himself fully through Jesus Christ. And the scripture teaches that this was a mystery. That even when the prophets spoke, they didn't have full understanding. 
And we saw that through the generations of the historical record of, of, of what was going on in the first century, especially in the Acts of the Apostles. We saw how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, we saw how the Jewish, the spiritual leaders of God's people, of God's worship, how they misinterpreted and misapplied so many things. How they got to a place where they thought that a level of piety was what got them justified. A certain type of dress maintained their presence before God. You know what dictates dress? Weather. And some of the most nonsensical missionary stuff that I've ever seen in my life is talking to a person one time who said when they were in West Africa and they came to a village and this village received the gospel and the first thing that they did after that gospel belief took root was to ship them European, I mean Western clothes to try to cover their bodies. It's nonsense. God's bigger than a loincloth or a dress or a hat. This is not what Christianity is about. It's not what the faith is about. God is sovereign over this thing. So, so the Pharisees, they're like, well, we dress this way, we act this way, we speak this way, we wear this. I mean, they took so literal the instructions of Scripture about having the Word of God forever before them and dear to their, and near their heart that they wrote it out in little scrolls and put it in what's called phylacteries and put it in front of their face, hung it like a Christmas tree ornament in front of their face. No one else is obeying God like me. I have the Bible. I mean, could you imagine me walking around with the Bible like this? How you doing? Man, am I holy or what? You're hilarious. It's not about that. The mystery, they didn't understand it. Because God alone can reveal the mystery. If we go over to Ephesians, go, go to Ephesians if you can for a moment. And here, here's the point of the sermon today. Let me give it to you so we know where we're going. Some people say, and they don't understand the fullness of God and His sovereignty and how He reveals Himself. Some people say, oh, God does want to save every person in creation. And I disavow that, not only because of my faith and lineage and our Baptist faith. We disavow that. I disavow that because Scripture teaches against it. I disavow that because it is in like manner to suggest that God is what He says He's not. I disavow the re, this, this idea of the systemized theology that talks about the revealed and hidden will of God and all these different wills of God. And it depends on who you talk to and what school you go to. You could have two, you could have five, you could have seven, you could have twelve. And if you're a mystic or, or a Gnostic, whew, it's exponential. But it says here in verse 3 of Timothy... This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm dealing with that thing this morning. I've already talked about what it means. But I want to prove to you through Scripture today that it does not mean that God desires to save every human being. God is not frustrated. God is not frustrated. And I'm not even going to talk about the evangelical tradition because that's foolishness. But even in the Reformed tradition... This has been sort of washed away. And people have just stopped thinking about it. But beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, for the sake of our worship and our unity, we need to understand that this is not a proof text for a hidden will of God that he desires something that alternative that he's going to accomplish. Because that would contradict what he says. I will accomplish all my desires. My word will go forth and do exactly what I want it to do. So is God bipolar? 
Is God frustrated? Is God subject to the fairness of how we view what is good and right? Is God even, would he be evil if he saw, saw fit to save no human being? No, he'd be perfectly righteous and perfect. He would be loving and awesome. He'd be worthy of all praise if every human being in the world was condemned. Because that's what justice is. The mystery. Ephesians chapter 3. Mm. I don't know how long it's going to take Trey to get here, but it's going to be good when he does. <laughs> For this reason, what reason? That you were far off, Ephesus, Gentile, and God brought, brought, brought you near. See, Ur, Chaldeans, you worship in the moon. Abram, you were far off, and I brought you near. And then from you, I created a promise of a son who would create a people who were far off and I brought them near. There was nothing and the earth was void with did not exist and then God called it into being. He created everything from nothing. He brought it near. He displayed himself to that which he creates and that in all of the things that God does is to show his superior, sovereign, redemptive work for his people in this life. It's all about the Christ. So for this reason... That's why Paul says that. A prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, not Jews. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. This mystery. As I have written very briefly. When you read this, you can perceive. You can look into the mystery that now I understand. I see it. I thought I knew it, but I couldn't see anything. And the only time I could see it is when God blinded me and showed me supernaturally, you see. That's the picture of Paul being blinded at his conversion. And Paul's conversion was so far away from the evangelical sense of how we teach the gospel. Christ stood before him and threw him off a horse and slammed him and dragged him down on the ground and said, Why are you persecuting me? <laughs> you know, boy, what's wrong with you? That type of thing. I mean, how would that be on your next mission trip to New York? It wouldn't work, but yet that is the evangelism of God. Abram, go. Moses, hey, you, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Okay, now go do what I tell you to do. All right. Now you can perceive. When you read this verse 4 of Ephesians 3, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was, not made known, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was not given to them. They didn't have the full picture as it has now been revealed. It wasn't that they were completely dumb and ignorant. It wasn't fully understood. And how do we know that? Because Israel became an isolated people. They thought that holiness was by isolation. They thought that expansion of God's kingdom was by Blood purity, which none of them were, <laughs> they weren't a people, then they were called a people. Like me being the nation of Claxton all of a sudden. Yeah, welcome to the new nation. That's how it was, that's what God did, he declared it. And so now, he says the other generations has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then explains it, verse 6 of Ephesians 3, he says the mystery is this, this is it. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. 
That means God has created a people for himself in the picture of Israel, in the picture of creation, Adam, Eve, in the garden, separating them from the temple because of sin, and the only way that they can come back into the presence of God is through the seed of the woman who was born of a virgin. So that that child may be their propitiation. That means satisfy his wrath. Why does he have wrath against humanity? Because they've fallen into sin. They've rebelled against his promises. They didn't believe that if they just did what he said, that they would have eternal life. There was something more that they wanted. That's what we do. And we do it every day, beloved, in our study of the Bible. We want something more. We want something deeper. We want something more interesting. We do it every day in our service to the Lord. Well, if I'm not in danger, I'm not really serving God. If I'm not really sacrificing, I'm not really serving God. If I don't know all the languages, I'm not really serving God. If I didn't get my doctorate, I'm not serving God. If I'm not a member of this church or that church or doing these things and I'm not serving God, that's hogwash. The mystery is simple. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, I don't know about you, but as a son... If all of a sudden, you know, if it was like it was in the old days and my dad's real old and he calls his boys in there around his deathbed and says, I've got billions and billions of dollars. I mean, you know, he doesn't. But let's just say he did. 900,000 acres and I'm just going to leave it all to you. But I met a guy yesterday that he seemed a little hungry and I'm going to make him an heir with you. I'm going to split it four ways. Oh, we'd be upset. We'd be upset. Even worse, we said, I'll make 20 guys. I'm going to split it 23 ways. Who is this guy? I don't remember his name, but he's right outside. Bring him in here and we give it all to him. See how that makes you see how that make you feel? If the reading of the will and your mean old neighbor who left burning dog poo on your front porch every week got half your inheritance. That's the mystery. God is not a respecter of persons. He sent his son into the world to save sinners. A Paul would say has already said in 1 Timothy, of which I am the foremost. Members of the same body. Onesimus, Paul would say to Philemon, when that slave of yours comes back, he is your free brother. And as you roll out the carpet for me and tend to me and give me money and give me food and give me a place to stay in high stature, you better do the same for him because he is just as I am, a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that is against the grain. It is ridiculous to think that God has his elect people in the lowest parts of the world. And some of us, when we hear that statement, lowest parts of the world, we think culture or country or wealth or family, or name, or melanin. Sometimes we think maybe it, it refers to worldview or politics. Sometimes we think it, it refers to what people agree as sin or their theolo theological bend. <laughs> Beloved, there's not a person, there's not an iteration of persons in this world from whom God does not have an elect person to save. Of this good report, Paul says, verse 7, Ephesians 3, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace 
which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given in order to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold, that's the assembly of the saints, the gathering as one body, the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places, including the devil and his angels. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized now, has come to pass, has come to fruition in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. There you go. So we have unity. We see that the Bible reveals that the mystery of the gospel is literally about God is going to save his people out of all nations, out of all tongues, out of all tribes, out of all types of people, all kinds of people. This is the sovereign message of the cross. It is not convoluted. It is not mysterious anymore, even though it is mysterious in the sense that it's a supernatural and divine work. We can't fathom the depths of it. It has been given to us. So we do not have to wonder what God wants or what God is going to do because the Bible teaches completely and holistically without any type of interruption or interference and no contradictions that God has saved his people in the death of Christ. And it is finished. And it is revealed to us in this way. So the question then on the table back to 1 Timothy is what does it mean when he says, I want you to pray for all people? For example, kings and those in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful life, godly, dignified, quiet in every way. This is good. What is good? Living a life this way and praying for all peoples. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, so while all of a sudden when we know what the gospel is and does and we know the will of God revealed to us through Christ Jesus, do we have this tension in our hearts and minds theologically and culturally to try to make God in some way a little more tolerable or palatable to the culture? God wants to save you. That's not even the gospel message, is it? Where in the book of Acts does anyone say, God wants to save you? Will you come? No, Jesus commands him to come. We're going to get to John 6 in a minute. I haven't got to John in a while. We're going to get back in there. He commands you to come. He calls his people to come. And those, according to John 10, who have ears to hear will hear and they will come. The word of God does not return void. Evangelism is not about an opportunity for salvation by the will of man. In John chapter 1, we see that it is not by the blood of the decision of humanity, but by the will of God that he declares them to be his children. And he can do so in a just way and justified way without being wicked, therefore not being God, because he has satisfied all justice and righteousness in the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross. Why is this important? Why this theology this morning? 
Because, beloved, you can't really worship a God who you really can't fully see. And Jesus' own words in John chapter 4 is that we must worship in spirit and in truth. And if the truth of the God we worship is not the true God, then what are we worshiping? An idol. An idol. So this is important for the people of Christ to understand so that we get it right. So that we can be encouraged. So that our joy would be full. Because there's nothing worse when that knock on your door comes and somebody's evangelizing your house. Whether it be a Russellite or whether it be a Methodist or whether it be a Baptist or whoever. They'll all knock eventually. And they start to tell you about this Jesus that's not found in the Bible. Or this God and his desires and his heart and his love that's not found revealed by him. So what is the revelation of God fully known to the saints? Is Jesus Christ, his love for his people, laying down his life. The satisfaction of the wrath of God in the propitiatory work, in the substitutional work of Jesus Christ. It is revealed to us. And this work of salvation is the mission of Paul. I mean, look at, look at 1 Timothy 2. Let's go back there for a minute. This is good and pleasing to pray for these people, all kinds of people, not just each other, not just the people in your own circle, not just the poor people over here for the poor folks, not just for the rich people over here in the rich section, not just for the brown people and the yellow people and the green people and the red people and the purple people. All kinds of people. That's literally what it means. All kinds of people. I want you to pray for all kinds of people like kings and those in high places. I remember just four weeks ago when I said how often we pray for Joe Biden. And there were laughters in the congregation. Because it's laughable for some of us to think about praying for the president. And that, no matter who's there. I've, I've heard that type of stuff. I mean it's just what we do. Praying for the governor, praying for the mayor, praying. I'll pray for him, all right. Rain down, Lord. Brimstone and hell. That's, that's what we do. And Paul's saying, no, pray for him. Pray for God is pleased. He is our Savior. And he desires all kinds of people to be saved. How can you say that? Because that's what the context says. He's talking about all kinds of people. Paul's not stupid. He's not going to change his... He's not like me. He doesn't just flit all over the place and have five conversations in one. He stays on task to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God. Look at verse 5. One God and one mediator between God and plural men. Mankind. And that mediator is the single man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Nowhere else do we see this kind of conversation mean the entire universe. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So now here it is, it gives you the extra oomph. You want to understand the context. All types of people, pray for people who are in high positions, pray for people in low positions. Pray for people because God is going to save his people out of all kinds of people. As I was called to preach to you who are not my kind of people. 
John 3, Nicodemus, same thing. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, that is what Jesus calls him. He knows it all. He's theologically sound. He's got it all together. He knows it. He's memorized it. Folks, they didn't walk around with scrolls. It's not walking around with rolls of wallpaper. It was in their minds. There was no verses. What did Isaiah say? Can you imagine having to just say in the middle of a paragraph? And Nicodemus didn't understand. It was a mystery. It wasn't revealed to him by the Spirit. So Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be made alive by the Spirit. It's not something you can come to your own conclusion about. You can't come and sit here and talk with me academically. I can't show you these theological things and these arguments. I can't logically bring you into the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. Guess what we do? Do a five-point track with a prayer at the end. Please check the box. All I had to do was check a box. Gosh, I shouldn't have. Why am I in hell? All I need you should. You didn't give me a pen. You see the pathetic ideology in that kind of evangelism? It's not hopeful. It's desperate. God is not desperate. God is not hopeful. He is what he is. And he does not change. So Paul is just reiterating exactly what the evangelists, the evangelist Jesus had to say. Because, I mean, you realize 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Ephesians, Colossians, these are not evangelistic writings. Peter, those letters, they're not for evangelism. If you teach these things to unbelievers, they get confused. Why? Because there are reminders of gospel truths in there. They're not holistic. What about Romans? Oh, please don't. Use Romans and evangelism with your neighbor. They won't get past the first chapter. Well, that's not fair. You're right. Grace is not fair. Grace is just. Because Christ paid for the sins. You see, it's a big difference. A big difference. Jesus, the evangelist. So if we're going to evangelize, let's use the Gospels. Let's use the message of the Gospel, the good report, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I personally think, for me and my people, uh, John is the best one because I don't have to spend 900,000 hours digging through the Talmud to answer all the questions that come. That's, I'm just saying. You can use it all. But I purpose to use John's Gospel almost all the time in evangelizing. And when we get to John chapter 6, it's always a cool little situation, isn't it? John 6, you know, feeds the 5,000. It's really cool. Walks on water, teleports a boat. I mean, this is like sci-fi before there was science. That's a joke. It's always been science. And then they go over there. Like, oh, how did you get here? Man, you're not looking after me because you want me, you want what I have for you. You want me to dig into this bag and bring out some magic bread again and just give you more bread because you're hungry. You want me to be your little slave. And the irony behind that is that Jesus was the slave of his people. He did not come 
to be served, but to serve and to die on a cross. And he gets on through, and they're like, give us this bread, show us this sign, what are we supposed to do? In chapter 6 of John, verse 35, Jesus gets into some theological evangelism that blows their minds. And imagine who he's talking to. He's talking to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. If 5,000 men were fed, wasn't a whole lot of single families back then. Let's just be, let's just be conservative and say there were 15,000 people there. Man, woman, and child, make it even. Dog, cat, whatever they brought with them. Give us this bread. That's what they'd say to Jesus. We'll take it. We'll take it. Give me, give me, give me. And Jesus says, I am the bread. Here I am. That's somebody ringing your doorbell. You know, remember back in the day where every man is supposed to ring your doorbell with a big check? You know, what if he rang your check, rang the doorbell and, oh my gosh, I won. He said, no, I'm just coming to live with you. I'm broke. I gave all my checks out. You're like, oh, really? I mean, we don't want him. We want his money. We don't want the sweepstakes telephone face. We want the money. We don't want the mortgage debt. We want the house. Here it is. They're fixing to get something from Jesus. And Jesus says, well, here I am. I'm the bread of life that come from heaven. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. You're looking at me. And then he explains why. All that the Father gives me will, without fail, come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, ever, without a possibility, cast out. So how do I come to Jesus? The Father gives you to him. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the revealed will of my Father in heaven, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But I will raise every one of them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a done deal. It's a promise. It's a purpose. It's a power of God revealed in the teaching. of This is evangelism. Now, how do you give an altar call after that? It's already been given. It's not about action, will, decision, checkbox. It's not about any of these things. It's about God supernaturally causing a person to rest in his promise of salvation that has been effected and, and solidified and finished in Jesus Christ. It is a divine work. That is why a child is easier to believe than we child goes so it is and we go well what about this <laughs> yeah but 
There's going to be a section in heaven for the year of butts, I think. It's a joke. So the Jews grumble. Because they heard him say, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They knew this man did not come from God in their own eyes. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? You know, born out of wedlock. We know them. And how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus said, don't grumble amongst yourselves. Don't worry about it. Don't bother your little heads about trying to figure this out. Because no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags them to me. And I'm going to emphasize for the state of the context and the syntax and the meaning of the words, unless the Father snatches them out and hurls them unto me by force. That's not the God I know. Forcing somebody to believe. Beloved, if he doesn't give you faith divinely and supernaturally, apart from your will, you haven't been born again. You're still working through the process of what you must do in order to establish justification and righteousness and stand before God. You're trying to figure out if you did it right, if you said it right, if you wanted it right, if you desired it right. Are you living right? Are you dressing right? Are you looking at the Bible right? Have you served enough? No one comes to me. No one can come to me as the Father who sent me gives him, draws him, drags him. And I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. So see, here's your answer. And we could go right to John 10. The sheep hear his voice. Don't hear my voice. Don't hear my arguments. You can agree with them. If the Spirit of God gives you understanding, and if we're speaking in the same Spirit. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who is born of God comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except me. That's what he says there. He who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Whoever rests in me, whoever eats of me, whoever drinks of me, whoever is satisfied in me, whoever is at peace in me has eternal life. Because I am the bread of life. And your fathers, by the way, he says to them, they ate the manna in the wilderness. They ate that perishing bread that wouldn't last but a couple of hours. They tried to store it away, but it perished. And they died. This I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. You see, the gospel is about Jesus saving his people from the world, out of the world. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe.
That same language, by the way, is over in Titus chapter 2 about all men. And Paul talks to Titus and he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he starts talking about old men and sober men and older women and younger women and younger men and children and all these other things. Slaves and masters and employers and employees and all this stuff. And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The same context, same word, same grammar. It's talking about all types of people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 He's talking about all types of people. This does not teach us, except in a pretext, out of context, that God wants to save every person. And I'm not interested in the errors of antiquity because they hold no authority over my sovereign grace, Savior. You see? Because that's what we get. For some of you who are students of, of, of theology, you're like, what? yeah, but so-and-so, what so-and-so. I mean, i got a list this long disagree with you. I don't care. I can read this and I know the context here. And you can read it too. But if you try to make it say anything else, you are bringing to that passage something that's not in the Bible. God's desire is not frustrated. He gets everything that he wants. Nicodemus was upset when Jesus said, God loves the world. Just like I would be upset if my father added 20 heirs in his will that I did not know. Sometimes I think in our tight-knit, high circles, we, we get really tense when we think about somebody else affiliating or associating with us in any way that might not be exactly like we are. I didn't say we call everybody a brother. But beloved, there's a lot of knuckleheads out there that will one day be revealed as brothers and sisters. There's a lot of demon-minded people out there that'll be. There's a lot of ridiculously sinful people. And you know what? We're not going to know that they're a child of God by them coming out of their wickedness. We're going to know they're a child of God by, because they've been born of God to know the gospel and to rest in Christ. And then we get together and we get to work it all out, don't we? We get to serve and learn and grow and serve one another and love one another through the service. And in doing so, we worship Christ fully. And then we're able to, li to literally live, at live our lives at rest and at peace and go to bed at night knowing that God is sovereign over everything, especially salvation. And so we can pray for our children accordingly. We can pray for our neighbors and our spouses accordingly. We can pray for our enemies. We can pray for all the people in the world that, that bother us and the people that don't bother us and the people we like and the people we don't like. And we can pray that God would bring his purposes to a certain end that he would call his people out of darkness into the light of Christ and that he would show himself and his glory in that work 
And what do we do? When our winning team wins the championship, we like to get together and scream and shout and cheer. Beloved, that's one of the things that we get to accomplish when we come together in the assembly is we get to scream and shout and cheer praises to our Father who is the Savior of all of His people, which is inclusive of all kinds of people. And when we recognize this grace, it really shuts our pride down. And I was saying this yesterday, just a general speech at the wedding reception. That I have chained myself to my pride so many times and wonder why I was in prison. It's a terrible roommate. And along comes beside it a couple of other roommates. Anxiety, fear, suspicion, frustration. Of which don't describe God at all and none of the spiritual fruits are described therein. It's the exact opposite, the antithesis of these things. So part of understanding the nature of grace is to understand the nature of God and God is getting what he wants. We have one God, one mediator between God and men. That is the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. For all of his people. It is finished. It is paid. Therefore, the gospel when it is taught effectually brings when the Father desires faith because that's the result of the new birth and that's a logical order can't breathe until you're born you can't believe until you're born you can't see until your eyes are opened and this is the call of the apostles. This is the call of God's revelation. He's revealed himself. The mystery is not difficult anymore. It's crazy. It's wild. It's amazing. It's glorious. And how deep does it go? The unsearchable riches of Christ and grace and love. We don't understand how to grab hold of that, but we do understand how to hold fast to it. Jesus Christ. Came to save sinners. And Paul was not like the people of Ephesus. Paul's sin was not like the people of Ephesus. Paul's hatred and murder was not like the people of Ephesus. And as Brother Trey said last week, we're all just like Paul. Sinners guilty, and if not recipients of God's everlasting redemptive love in Christ Jesus, would still be charged guilty before our Father today. But we're not. Because his blood, his death, his life, all of it has satisfied God's wrath. And it is a finished work. And saving faith is resting in the finished work of Christ. All the rest of the growing and understanding and debates as uncivil as they can be, 
It's just part of the journey that God has divinely ordained for us to experience. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that just as you gave Paul strength as a wicked man to stand before those that he persecuted and then to preach the gospel to them. Lord, you give us the same grace and the same strength to teach the gospel to others. To take what you have done through your apostles and how you've revealed yourself through Jesus Christ to establish your will on earth, Lord, that you would save your people from their sin as a promise. And, Lord, that promise has been fulfilled. So let us preach the gospel indiscriminately to everyone. Let us share the truth of who you are to everyone, not worrying about how people may receive it or that we want to try to mold you into something that you haven't revealed emphatically. And Lord, just let the outcome of your word and your gospel power be in your hands so that we are not guilty of Adam and Eve's sin of trying to be like you. Lord, we are not like you. But we have been declared to be just like you because the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your son, has been given to us. We are clothed in another one's perfection. Give us peace that the world does not know, that the academics cannot know, that the logist, that the, 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 the most logical person in the world cannot fathom, Lord. It is a divine gift of rest, of faith, in the finished work of Christ that nothing we can do, nothing we can bring, but only to the cross of Christ we cling. And we thank you for this amazing grace in Christ's name. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Come as you can.